Welcome back to The Restaurant Innovator, a podcast from the editors of FSR Magazine that features conversations with trailblazing chefs, restaurateurs, and others in the food service world who are leading the charge in creating elevated experiences for guests and employees alike. We offer listeners a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes to stay ahead of the curve in this ever-evolving industry. I'm your host and FSR editor, Callie Evergreen, joined by my colleague and co-host, Sam Danley, associate editor. I'm excited to introduce you to our special guest on today's episode, Graham Humphreys, CEO of The Culinary Edge, a San Francisco-based food and beverage innovation agency that partners with brands including First Watch, Red Lobster, Buffalo Wild Wings, and more. Graham, thank you so much for joining us. Can you start off by introducing yourself and what led you to join The Culinary Edge? Well, Callie, Sam, thanks for having me on board. Uh, It's lovely to be here and it's lovely to see you. Um, you know, I came late to the F&B party, but I just choose to celebrate that I actually made it in the end. <laughs> my background and my story is like many of the people that we talk to in this industry has all kinds of twists and turns and all kinds of unexpected bits and pieces. Um, some folks, uh, you know, seem to have sprung from the womb, like ready to run 10 QSR units. Um, some folks have started in a completely different place, and I'm in the second category very much. Um, I actually started by studying music, and I was going to be a musician until I realized that I was going to never be able to afford my own drinks, and I was going to sleep on my friend's sofas for the rest of my life. And uh, <laughs> I thought, okay, like it's not going to happen. Unless you're like the tip of the top of that pyramid, then um, so I decided to make a change. And then I thought I'd go into telesales because I was promised big bucks. Uh, of course, um, just like food and beverage, big bucks in telesales. And I made, uh, I, I called the phone book, the Yellow Pages, uh, made 80 calls a day, and then, you know, had a nervous breakdown after eight months of that. And then <laughs> went into actually, rather than selling advertising, I began to buy advertising. I was a media buyer. And that's where, that's actually where most of the advertising money goes. It's not in creating these fancy Super Bowl commercials with, you know, helicopters and, you know, movie stars. It's uh, actually in the money that you spend buying the space um, uh, uh, on TV in that Super Bowl, buying that 30 second slot, if you like. So I did a lot of that. And then I thought, well, I don't want to buy this stuff. I actually want to make the commercials. So I got into, um, you know, creative, worked in creative advertising agencies for a while, especially digital. Um, and I was early on, you know, creating websites, creating digital advertising campaigns, creating apps. Um, and then all kinds of design. I was fascinated by what makes a brand tick. So got involved in designing and working with brands. Um, brand experiences, um, did some programs for brands, including, uh, you've probably heard of Nivea globally. Uh, they're a bigger deal globally than they are in the US. Um, Starbucks and uh, PayPal, um, you know, rebrands. And I was fascinated by the impact that those kinds of experiences can actually have on people, on people like you and me. And then finally, I got introduced to the Culinary Edge. And this is where I say I just choose to celebrate that I ended up in the right place because I really felt that I'd arrived when I met the people at the Culinary Edge and I saw the work that they did. And I realized that um, 
they did for food and beverage, what all of these fancy top design agencies do for hardware and software and, you know, creating the next uh, PayPal brand. It's applying the design method to create a food and beverage product and experience that really works. Looking back at this, uh, this kind of winding path to, uh, to your current position, um, what are some like key lessons or insights you picked up along the way that have shaped your approach to leadership uh, and innovation at the culinary edge? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think the, the top lesson is that innovation and strategy is not a deck. <laughs> You know, in um, you know, in all kinds of leadership positions, and all kinds of folks who are listening to this podcast are going to be spending their time in meetings, and they're going to be looking at a PowerPoint that's got points on, which is a plan. And those things are important; and they have a place. And we produce a lot of those kinds of PowerPoints or presentations. We use Keynote, but we we produce a lot of these presentations with a lot of these points on, and it, it's an important part. But at the end of the day, innovation and strategy to do that. Um, it's a plan that lives in people's minds and hearts. It's a goal that all the team shares, and it's a set of next steps, and it's an orientation that everybody's brought into. That's what strategy and innovation is. And the rest of it, you know, I was going to say, the rest of it can go to hell, but that's not true. The, the rest of it matters a lot less. Yeah. Hmm. You know, Graham, I'm curious, for readers who aren't as familiar with the culinary edge, can you explain a little bit more about, you know, the kind of restaurant brands you serve and what are your main goals? Yeah. Um, we, we say that we work with every kind of restaurant from startups to Starbucks. Um, but I, I think within that, I should elaborate all kinds of quick serve restaurants. We work with gas stations. We love to make a good gas station hot dog. We have a bunch of people from fine dining. So elevated, fast, casual, you know, um, fine, fast, casual is also on our menu and everything in between from, you know, all day cafes through to some of these like very focused concepts that you have coming out now, which just have 10 items on the menu through to helping existing brands on Main Street that, you know, we all know, helping them be their best selves or helping them figure out who they're going to be in 2025. So I like to say that, you know, if you haven't heard our name yet, if you're, if you're walking and you're above ground in the United States right now, you've, you've tasted our food. Mm. And so what are some of the biggest trends that you're seeing right now that you're then going to these brands and advising them on when it comes to their menu? There's a big trend about right-sizing the restaurant. Um, you know, we're at a place in, in time, which is, it's just the best time to be working in the food and beverage industry right now, because there's so much which is changing on every level about our society, about how we eat, about um, um, economics, about how people use restaurants, um, about how restaurants can get to their customers. We've got new channels. Everything's changing. And so it's such a fantastic time and an innovative time to be in food and beverage. Um, so this notion of right-sizing the, right the restaurant, <laughs> you know, it comes from a fact that, you know, somebody of my generation, my age, I'm very Gen X. Um, and if you tell the word, tell me the word restaurant, the thing which comes into my mind is a set of tables and chairs. 
and a kitchen in the same building in proximity, ideally with a well-stocked bar in between, if it's like the kind of restaurant that I like. And if you're sitting down for a meal, I'm thinking of four people at a, you know, a four top and they are making eye contact with each other. And there's a beginning and a middle and an end to the meal. And we go to a place to have that meal together. We invest a certain um, time box and nothing else comes in the way of that meal. Um, and it starts with the entrees and it, well, well, entrees, if you're English, it starts with the appetizers, if you're American, and then it finishes with dessert or whatever you like to finish your meal with. Um, and if you were to talk to my kids about, well, what do you think when you, you know, hear the word restaurant, they might be thinking about something which is on a phone. And if you're thinking about, well, what is a meal? They might be thinking of, you know, food that actually comes to them while they're doing what they prefer to be doing, right? You know, they're out on a ride with their sisters or they're doing something else. Um, so I think for every generation, restaurants can appear in all of these different ways. But the notion of a restaurant and our preconceptions of what a restaurant is and what a meal is have changed a lot um, over the last few years. You know, uh, another thing that's kind of been changing or evolving here lately is this idea of value. Uh, what are your thoughts on how that term is being redefined and like what that means for restaurants and, you know, the type of clients you work with going forward? Yeah. You know, um, again, you know, value is an area that we're doing more and more in. Um, in a way, it's becoming a bit more interesting than it used to be. Um, you know, value used to be like, how many items can we have a, at a buck? Um, and part of value is still that, um, you know, depending on which restaurant and which brand that you're working with and which audience you're working with. But, you know, um, thinking about, you know, you wrote a great piece, actually, um, a QSR magazine wrote a great piece uh, back in April, and it, it was talking about Del Taco's um, evolution of the value menu. And, you know, previously where Del Taco had been focused very much on this $1 value mark, they then decided, okay, we're going to go to two bucks, but that's going to mean that we have more opportunities to make, um, bring in more visual value, um, more abundance to the items. And we can also make them a little bit more cool and we can make them more flavorful because we can do that. So it's, it, it's more value for money now than it has been, um, you know, meeting a particular low price threshold. And there's more to it too. You know, I think that um, we see a lot of bundling now. So how much can you get for a $14 bundle? You can build your own bundle and people involving people in building their own value. And then further, we're seeing that value offerings are changing regionally. Um, that, um, you know, brands like McDonald's are picking and choosing what's going to be on the value menu, depending on what region of the country, what indeed what region of the planet that they're in. Mm. You know, and kind of speaking of value trends, you know, another thing we're seeing show up on menus, obviously, is, you know, Gen Z leading consumers towards that kind of flexitarian approach to eating out. Um, I'm curious, you know, what your insight is on that and what do you think it means for the, the future? Um, well, I think flexitarianism is definitely here to stay. Um, I think that within that, there are some things that may be more, more fashions that come and go. Um, 
but the big trend is that flexitarianism is here to stay. And I think that the, the, the longer term truth is that alternatives to what used to be animal meat, uh, which I think is the most concise definition we can make right now, <laughs> we call it what used to be animal meat. Um, um, alternatives to what used to be animal meat are here to stay too as well. Um, but we're seeing that changing. You know, I think that impossible and beyond, like we're having a hot minute right there. And I think that now um, there is like more negative PR about those brands. What remains true, though, is that brands like those, they've actually changed the world. <laughs> Right over the last ten years, they've made us think that there is a world in which I can have a burger-like experience without eating uh, a burger made from animals, or you know, live animals, and that's a massive change, which which is not which is not going to uh, reverse. Um, those brands like Impossible and Beyond are going to be re-engineering their positioning and re-engineering their products um, to meet you know a fast-evolving set of expectations, but the overall trend is is going to continue. So, you know, what are we seeing? We're seeing um, new uh, meat alternatives made from mycelium products and even fermented mycelium products. We're seeing increasingly convincing um, uh, shellfish uh, replacements. We're seeing increasingly convincing egg replacements. And so much progress has happened in the last couple of years that we can expect, you know, you extrapolate that another couple of years, it's going to be getting better and better. So that's very exciting. But um, what we can't forget is um, actually putting the plants into plant-based. <laughs> you know, I think that one of the um, things that, you know, I don't know exactly what sales are like on this, but the Shake Shack's Veggie Shack, I don't know if you noticed that, but um, that is a real plant-based burger made from plants. Um, and, you know, we... Uh, we work with some of the folks as well behind that formulation. There's a lot of food science going into that, a lot of real skill in using texturizers um, and making it have the mouthfeel of a burger and the moisture of a burger and the flavor. It, it's flavorsome as well, but it's made from plants. And, you know, saw that catching a lot of excitement because it's not a replacement anything. It's not trying to be a fake anything. It's trying to be all that it is, but it tastes more delicious. Yeah, you know, the, the plant-based space has always been really interesting to me. And I am kind of fascinated by that tension or debate between like, do you want something that replicates animal meat, but has all of these ingredients that no one knows how to pronounce? Or, you know, is there opportunities with kind of the whole, whole food direction? Um, it seems like it's kind of a, it's not an, it's an and is the answer. It's not a, you know, or. Um, it's, it's absolutely an and, you know, I think that what we're seeing is it's not about cutting out meat at all costs, right? The food still has to be delicious, ideally healthy too. But, you know, the, the bar for these alternative experiences is, is high. You know, for instance, like we're um, one of our upcoming launches, we've been trialing a, a, a vegan pizza restaurant. We've been trialing it out of a food truck um, in Florida, but the first unit is going to be launching. Um, in a couple of months, it's, it's called Wild Pie. And, you know, the, the brief for that was, we want to create a pizza restaurant that you can walk into. And the vegan pizza is so delicious that you kind of don't know it's a vegan pizza until maybe you've eaten half of it, right? And you thought, oh, there's no, like, there's nothing here that used to be from animals, right? So um, um, 
the 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 brief for vegan eating and flexitarian eating is that it's delicious first, second, and third, and people don't want to compromise anymore. Mm. You know, I'm curious when developing wild pie, can you kind of walk us through that that process from developing the concept from ideation to, you know, you're about to execute it? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the original brief was we want to create a vegan restaurant, but it's going to be so delicious that anybody can go in and not know that it's vegan. And we, you know, the, we figured out first, all right, well, where can we win? And it's not theoretical, you know, you've got to understand where are cheese substitutes, where are meat substitutes right now, where are protein substitutes, where are vegan ingredients, where can vegan ingredients um, win in creating something that um, is going to meet that brief, right, of not feeling like vegan food. So you have to have that knowledge first and foremost, and then you've got to think about, okay, well, where's the appetite going to be? Uh, and you, so thinking about what's desirable to, to, to your, your customer base, thinking about what's feasible, right, from a food and a food science and a food development perspective, and then thinking about what's viable, because these people want to make a buck as well. So <laughs> you th how do you thread the needle between those two things? And we came up with a couple, three territories, and we decided that pizza uh, was going to be the way to go. You know, pizza has been exploding like the last few years, but the appetite for pizza is not waning. And of, you know, all the foods that may accommodate um, a vegan approach, pizza seemed to be one of the most apt. So we decided on this, you know, vegan pizza concept. And then we figure out, all right, how are we going to, once we know the kind of restaurant that we're going to create, um, we design the brand, the naming, the environment, but then we also, at the core of it, we've got to design the menu. The menu is the product. The menu is the heart of the brand. And we figured we had to create a menu that felt familiar. It had to at once feel familiar to people who aren't vegan. So you have to have your classics, right? You have to have your meaty pizzas. You have to have your four-season pizzas. You have to have your cheesy pizzas. You have to have the pizza that's a pepperoni. You have to have all of these familiar types. But then you've also got to build in some of these food values to it so that you're signaling to a particular audience, yeah, you know, we, we're, we're here for you. We're here for plant-forward options that are also a little bit healthier while being delicious. So we create the whole restaurant on paper first. And we're thinking about, um, we create it on paper so that we're thinking, is it operationally feasible? Um, is it going to be desirable? Um, what's the staffing model for this? Uh, what's the financial model for this? How are we going to make money out of this? And what's the service style? How's the food going to be served? We get all those things right on paper because everything depends on everything else. And only when all of those things are locked, then we go into the kitchen. And that's when we're starting to uh, try out like 17 different kinds of vegan cheese prepared like 18 different ways to figure out how you get vegan cheese and which vegan cheese to perform like, the real, like uh, animal made cheese uh, on a pizza. You know, I think I might already know the answer to this, but I'm curious, you know, what would you say differentiates the culinary edge from other, you know, innovation consultancies out there? Gosh, um, you know, you gave me this, you gave me this question a day in advance, right? So, you know, the big reveal. And I had to think really, really hard about it because, <laughs> um, you know, um, 
we don't actively think about differentiating ourselves from other people. It's not something that actually ever crosses our minds. Um, we're very much focused on what is, you know, the mo uh, um, we're very much focused on what is the best solution to the problems that we're given, right? With the data that we're given, with the observations that we're making in the market right now, what does that mean? Therefore, what's the most desirable, feasible, viable solution? And we tend to end up with something that tends to be quite novel. Because if you think things through, you tend to come up with a different solution than the established solutions which are around you. Um, I, I got to say, we don't really focus on differentiating ourselves from others. And I think that that also means that we, we do find that we're quite a unique company. Uh, and there are not many other companies like us in every respect. And that does mean we have to work quite hard to explain ourselves and uh, talk about ourselves to the industry. You know, you uh, uh, a couple minutes ago, you mentioned looking at data. You know, what does the data say? I'm curious how that informs your decisions and your strategies and the work that you do, uh, but also kind of how you balance that with this idea of creativity uh, and, you know, offering something exciting and innovative um, while also having that kind of like hard data angle in there as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that it's an interesting way that you frame the question because the the question is like, okay, so we've got creativity here and we've got a data-driven approach to innovation here. I don't want to, uh, am I getting you right, Sam? Am I getting your question twisted a little bit? But it's almost as, as if there's some level of uh, data and constraints and real world and then there's creativity and it, there's some way that they're actually in conflict. You know, often... Often they are, um, but I think that that's because we think about creativity in the wrong way. Creativity is where you do take the real-world data, you take the real-world constraints, and you then say, what can we create with this? I think that if you're thinking about creativity in a way, well, if we didn't have any constraints, right? Well, we would do this like we, we'd build this great restaurant in the clouds. Um, I don't class that as creativity with a big C. I think creativity with a big C is where you are um, finding a better solution to a problem and threading the needle between various constraints. One of the most creative um, assignments that we did, I think, was the bistro um, at uh, Courtyard by Marriott. So, you know, it's if you think about a hotel lobby coffee shop slash bar slash restaurant, you have to serve a million different need states and occasions and types of customers. And if you actually go into one of those, I don't know if you use the hotels, but if you go into one of those, you'll see that, you know, basically they've got a tea kettle and toaster and that's the operating platform. So our challenge was with this like highly constrained operating platform, how can you create the most out of that? And to me, that's where real creativity lies. Mm. You know, can you share a personal insight or philosophy that has guided you through your journey in design and business so far? Um, thank you for that. I think that I would, I would come back to that notion that we talked about earlier, that if you want to make something happen, the plan has to exist in the people around you. And... It has to be something that gets their buy-in. It has to be something that everybody can hold in their heads. You know, too many bullets, forget about it. If it's too complicated, forget about it. 
if you want to make change, it has to be simple enough and it has to be human enough for the people around you to get a hold of it and to act on it. Um, I think that when you're working in consulting, as I have for a long time, you know, we've all seen the 400 page strategy decks, which are fantastic and fantastically thoughtful. And, you know, we need that kind of strategic leadership. We need that kind of strategic intelligence. But unless you can focus your ideas and boil them down to a plan that is memorable um, and actionable, then all of that thinking isn't going to yield anything. It's not going to, it's not going to end up in real world change. You know, being such a uh, like solutions focused company uh, and then, you know, with like the ever changing landscape of technology, consumer trends, consumer expectations, uh, how do you think about kind of staying ahead of the curve to ensure that the experience you, you design are going to remain relevant and stay exciting for the brands and customers? Yeah, I think that there's a few different things that we bake into our culture that make that almost automatic. Um, so what we don't do when a client comes along with a problem is saying, how can we make a solution that feels really, you know, novel and, you know, interesting and feels really, really, really new. We're always thinking about how do we find the best solution? And yet, Sam, like to your question, how do we make sure that we are always um, bringing new ideas and we're not staying stuck in old habits? Um, you know, the first thing that we do is we have a very diverse group of people. <laughs> so we have people who are from operating backgrounds. We have people who are pastry chefs. We have people who are from fine dining backgrounds and came up through kitchens. We've got people who came up through, you know, um, uh, Bonat Management Company and some of the major catering programs. We've got folks who are serial or food and beverage entrepreneurs and operators. We've got folks from design and innovation backgrounds and brand backgrounds like me. And the, all of these people have different skills and from different worlds. And I think that what we work very hard on is finding a way of working that means somebody who's spent, you know, who's chef de cuisine at Catania and somebody who's like me, who's from a, uh, an innovation strategy background, um, we find the same language to solve the same problem together because it needs us both. Um, and it needs some other folks too. So the first thing that we do is we bring a diverse set of people together and we work really hard on the interface of that. The second thing that we do is that we are always, always, always in the market, at restaurants, in all segments of the market, um, eating, ordering the menu, tasting everything. We spit pretty hard. <laughs> I tell you, some of these uh, food tours can be you know, kind of brutal. Um, um, we eat hard, we order hard, we spit hard, we record everything, we share everything. Um, and I think those two things together, um, in addition to spending a lot of time on TikTok, yes, we do, and making sure that um, um, we're always participating, you know, in the forefront of culture on that level. Uh, we take those things together and it becomes almost automatic that the solutions that we come up with are going to be different and they are going to be novel. Hmm. You know, what are some of the trends that, that you've been seeing on TikTok on your culinary tours that excite you the most um, about the, the future of the, the food and beverage industry? Hmm. You know, 
what excites me the most? I think it's that going back to the thought that now is a great time to be working in food and beverage. Um, it's almost if you go on TikTok, it's almost like food and beverage is like at this like point in culture. And if you can't see what I'm doing because you're listening to this, my hand is up here above my head. But food and beverage was always important to everybody. It's always been centrally important to humans for tens of thousands of years. But right now, it seems to be up there with hip hop and rock music and fashion. I mean, food seems to be. Um, one of the items that is adopted by individuals, especially on Gen Z and especially on TikTok, to express their identity and express who they are. You know, food is like what I consume and it's delicious, but the food and the, the values and what the food says about me, it's being used as a vehicle to express identity right now at an extent that I haven't seen before. Uh, and I think that's fantastically exciting and unnerving and exhilarating <laughs> for anybody who's doing what we do. Uh, and, you know, for the for the people listening in, uh, do you have any advice or words of wisdom for aspiring entrepreneurs or professionals that are you know looking to make a mark in the food and beverage industry? Yeah, um, well. If you're aspiring to make a mark in the food and beverage industry, I am assuming it's because you love what you do, because there's you know there's many more people who succeeded in this industry because they just loved it and couldn't imagine doing anything else, rather than just came in for the money, because you know that that, that that's not why people come into the food and beverage industry. Um, so follow your passions, but I'd also advise people bring your passion with you. I think that making it as an entrepreneur. Uh, involves all of the great stuff. It involves the vision and the dream, and it involves serving people food and giving hospitality and all of that great stuff. And it also involves the hard yards of making payroll. It involves the hard yards of ensuring that you're coming up to code of you know the staff member who can't come in today and figuring out how you're gonna cover. Um, but in all those things, as well as following your passion, Bring passion with you into everything that you do, even the things that you feel less passionate about. You know, I'm curious, while you're taking that passion with you, how do you avoid that, that effervescent burnout in this industry? Goodness, that's a massive question. Um, you know, <laughs> I think about burnout a lot, <laughs> you know? Um, you know, we're all human beings, um, all of us burn out, all of us, um, um, all of us at every level and every stage of our careers, um, encounter those moments where what plugged in our batteries before doesn't seem to work anymore, right? You plug in, so the current's not there, right? It doesn't feel like it used to, it doesn't feel like it normally does. And, you know, that's human. I think in hospitality, you know, Callie, I actually hadn't thought about this, but your question made me just think about this too. In hospitality, it always struck me as soon as I arrived at the culinary edge, because I have a performance background, right? I studied. And when I met hospitality people, they it reminded me of the people that I'd studied with, because it's always showtime. You're kind of like putting on this wonderful performance of hospitality, right? These gifts that you're giving, these acts of love for strangers, as one of our Italian clients put it. 
um, these acts of love for strangers that you're always putting on and you're always doing the emotional labor of giving other people great experiences. And of course, it's, you know, it's going to be a recipe for burnout. Um, we have, you know, over the last few years, my notion of what it means to have a happy team and to care for a team have totally changed, you know, and I've learned a ton about it. Um, I think that there's, there's two things. One is always finding the reasons to celebrate as a team. Um, second is making sure that as a team, you're leading from a place of confidence and not fear. And the third is individually, you know how your phone has a low power mode? I use a low power mode on my phone all the time, and it means that my battery lasts a lot longer. And I think that there are times when you're not feeling it, the batteries are depleted, they're literally run down. The things that plug your batteries in, like working with creative people or these great new ideas or these clients who have an interesting problem or these people that you love and they're not plugging your batteries in. I sometimes use a low power mode on myself. And it's, you know, I like to get the most out of every day, but maybe today doesn't have to be that day where I push it to the nth degree. Mm. Um, and I find that after a few days of low power mode, I'm ready to go on full power again, personally. I like that analogy. That's a great analogy. <laughs> thank you for that. And thank you for all of your, your insight on this. I don't even know how to, to sum up all of the topics that we, we talked about here today, but thank you so much. You know, if, if people are curious about the Culinary Edge, where can they learn more? How can people contact you? Oh, Graham at the Culinary Edge. Um, I'm, yeah, uh, I'm equal opportunity available. Fantastic. Well, I also like what you said, you know, a lot of the restaurant industry, it's about theatrics and the show must go on. So thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to all our listeners out there. We'll see you at the next one.